When I grow up, I want to work for a woke company. Like super woke. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like rather than my skills. I want to be judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my coworkers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather, peanut gallery, long time no see, no can do. When I grow up, I want to be obsessed with emotional safety and do workplace sensitivity training all day long. When I grow up, I want to climb the corporate ladder just by following the crowd. I want to be a conformist. I want to weaponize my pronouns. What are pronouns? It's time to grow up and get back to work. Introducing the number one woke-free job board in America, redballoon.work. Hey everybody, Michael Thiessen here, and you are listening to Open Mic with me, Michael Thiessen. This show is produced by Liberty Coalition Canada in partnership with ChristianWeek.org. Liberty Coalition Canada exists to establish Christ's justice and righteousness. We want to teach people about what Jesus says about those topics and to defend those who stand Um, when the state overreaches and takes those good Christians to court. Christian Week exists to provide a practical, balanced, hope-filled perspective on national and global issues. Please go over to christianweek.org and see some updated news there. Before I get started, I have a great guest on again. You know her. Her name is Deanna McLeod, and she is with me. Before we get right into our subject matter, I want to announce two different events. And so we really want you to come to these events. So Monday, October 23rd at Trinity Bible Chapel in Waterloo. Um, We are having a filming of a live Liberty Lounge. And then on Tuesday at Trinity Baptist Church in Burlington, we are filming a live Liberty Dispatch. So we really would like you to come. Those events start at 9.30. They start at 7.30 and they go to 9.30. And of course, you're going to have myself Tim Tyso, uh, Andrew DuBartolo might be there, and Matthew Halleck will be coming in. We're going to have a four-person panel discussion, and we've chosen our subject. This is the first time that I'm announcing the subject on our show. We are going to be talking about Israel, the Middle East, Hamas, and all of this new civil unrest that is happening, uh, of course, because evil is brewing in the world. So please come to that. That's on Monday, October 23rd or Tuesday, October 24th. And if you're a listener and then you're in the United States or you're traveling to the U.S., our second event is the Spark Leadership Conference, October 31st through November 1st. Myself, Joe Boot, Nate Wright, Tim Stevens, and James Kitchen will be in South Carolina in order to spark the American church to life as we tell stories of what happened in Canada. So tickets are $50, and you can go to the sparkconferences.org. Man, Deanna, I hate giving announcements, but it's the only way to get our listeners to understand that they can get better information. And I'm excited to have you on again because here we go. Everybody, Deanna called me earlier and said, how much time do we have? And I said, as always, we have an hour. But as always, if we have to go into multiple parts, then we're just going to have to do it. Because, of course, Deanna, when you come on, you bring such comprehensive information. So everybody, today, 
we are going to be talking about protecting pregnancy and breastfeeding as we talk about these new COVID-19 mRNAs and the, the philosophy shift that has happened with um, maternal or maternity vaccination. And Deanna, thanks for coming on the show. It's so good to have you here with us. Well, it's a pleasure, Mike, as always. So <laughs> I love the fact that you just let me talk on your show and share exactly. all this information. Well, <laughs> it, it, it's uh, it's so informative as always. So, uh, Deanna, I know you have a presentation to start us off with, mm -hmm. and we'll do the same format as we usually do. You go through some of the slides, and when I have an, a question or a point of clarification that might help myself and our listeners understand some of the technical data, then we'll just pause the conversation and 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 and, and we go through it. But your presentations are so helpful. Why don't we dive right into it? So everybody, All we're right. talking about protecting pregnancy and breastfeeding. And this is our good friend, Deanna, giving us our presentation. No, I'm so um, as you mentioned, this is a um, basically a work that uh, the CCCA has done in partnership with Mama Bears. Uh, and it's about raising awareness of the COVID-19 mRNA products in pregnancy and breastfeeding. Uh, and just revisiting the um, main tenant of medicine, which is to do no harm. And of course, in the context of uh, the unborn and newborn children, uh, doing no harm is very, very important. So um, <laughs> a lot of the time, Mike, when you have me on your show, it's about you know some of the work that uh, our particular research firm has done. Um, but in this particular case, I've got... Uh, a star-studded panel of experts that really helped bring all of this together uh, and develop this particular campaign to raise awareness around the concerns uh, related to pregnancy and breastfeeding. And so uh, on the panel is Dr. J James Thorpe. Uh, he's an OB-GYN and <clears throat> maternal fetal medicine specialist out of the US. Uh, and uh, he has um, done some amazing research in this area and is a, is a very uh, passionate advocate for uh, stopping the COVID-19 mRNA products in pregnancy and breastfeeding. Uh, we had the pleasure of working with Dr. Mary Sharp. Uh, she's a veteran midwife um, and a PhD and uh, an educator in midwifery. Um, we had uh, Dr. <laughs> not Dr., but Joyce Solomon um, on the panel too. And she is somebody that received uh, a product called um, DES uh, many, many moons ago that was given to women uh, to help control uh, nausea during pregnancy. And it ended up that this product ended up causing uh, cancers and sterilization or uh, a lot of downstream effects. And so Joyce was one of those uh, children who whose mothers received this product and she tells her story in our um, campaign about the effects. So again, just one of the main themes uh, in this particular um, campaign is this, this notion that what we do in the womb, uh, any type of effects can have long lasting effects. And with DES, it's even gone to the second generation. So when we're, we're working with products uh, in the maternal setting, when we're giving them to women who are pregnant, we really need to be thinking about not doing harm and protecting from harm and minimizing the risk of harm all the way through uh, a person's life and into the second generation. And, and we're really happy to have Joyce work with us on this campaign to really raise that important element. Um, 
Uh, Delinda Reese is a retired uh, physician from the U.S. and an integrative medicine uh, specialist. So she uh, had a hand in, in preparing this along with Dr. Neil Caro, who's a professor of immunotoxicology. Uh, and so he was able to really kind of give us some insights into how this spike protein might be affecting the developing child. Um, Hannah Parika is an IVF in vitro fertilization biologist, and she was talking to us about the changes uh, that she's seen in uh, the sperm and oocytes uh, and embryos following vaccination. Uh, Dr. Karen is a, a, a has a PhD in human development, uh, and she was able to play a role. We've got uh, Carol Beveridge, who's an MSc in integrative medical health, uh, Dr. Stephen Pellick, who is a professor in neurobiology, uh, and of course, uh, myself, who uh, is an evidence-based medicine expert. Um, and I'm here today to present uh, the, this particular, these particular findings, but uh, just to emphasize the fact that this is the product of this star-studded panel of experts. Uh, and I'm really excited to <clears throat> have a lot of depth and breadth to this particular presentation because it's so complicated. So um, let's just think about the pregnancy continuum. Um, you know, there's incredible developmental stages uh, to a child in the womb. We've got a few of them here as the newborns uh, develop, as the unborn is developing. Uh, and of course, it goes all the way through to breastfeeding and beyond that. Uh, <clears throat> again, we've talked about the fact that uh, things that happen in the womb can have lifelong effects. And one of the most sensitive times uh, is the first trimester. Uh, that's when there's a lot of movement and a lot of um, processes and, and cells moving and streaming in various uh, directions and any type of interruption in those early stages can actually result in some pretty significant changes or impacts uh, as the baby is developing in the womb. Um, and of course, that sensitive time extends right through to pregnancy and, uh, and even beyond as uh, Joyce so um, passionately explained to us. So when we're thinking about giving people, uh, mothers, products when they're uh, pregnant, we really have to be considering the precautionary principle. And this principle has been the principle that has uh, provided the framework for all type of uh, thoughts uh, as it relates to pregnancy. So it's the principle that um, the introduction of a new product or process whose ultimate effects are disputed or unknown should be resisted. So if you don't know that something is completely safe uh, and that it will not affect the developing child um, and that it is safe through breastfeeding to early childhood uh, and even into adulthood, then it should be resisted in the sense of you should not be taking it. And this has been a principle that's governed um, you know, pregnancy uh, for decades now. And it's the, it's the principle that undergirds the, the cautions or the recommendations that doctors make to, you know, not, you know, minimize alcohol intake during pregnancy, minimize smoking during pregnancy, don't eat sushi, don't change the cat litter, and, and definitely don't take a number of different medications because they haven't been proven safe. And so this has been a guiding principle, but um, interestingly enough, uh, there's an intersection with uh, another movement in healthcare, which is this push towards vaccines. And this particular slide um, explains that in terms of um, the 
products that are most lucrative, uh, a lot of that depends on the size of the market that the product is designated for. So, you know, for instance, if it's an infection that's in a very limited population, uh, then the market potential is very small, even if you have a high priced item. Um, so when it comes to marketing drugs, what you really want to do is you want to find a market that is very broad. And of course, vaccines are amazing that way because um, you can give a vaccine. All you have to do is have a fear of a given severe outcome of a, of a, a disease. Uh, and then anybody who's born can actually qualify for a vaccine, whether they've been sick or not, or whether at risk or not, we basically just vaccinate anybody. And so vaccines have been one of the, the most lucrative products in terms of a financial payoff for companies. And in addition to that, um, the, a lot of market forces have been eliminated. And this is basically uh, a section of uh, the National Child Vaccine Injury Act. It's a US law that was passed that basically said that pharmaceutical companies are indemnified from any type of liability related to the safety of their products. Um, and what that means is that there's a market force, which means that a company can be sued if their product is unsafe. And that's a check in the system in terms of making sure that vaccine manufacturers uh, ensure the safety of their products. And so once that element was eliminated and it was eliminated in Canada also, um, what it does is it basically makes it so that the vaccine manufacturers and those who promote vaccines in conjunction with uh, manufacturers, for instance, public health, no longer have to uh, ensure the safety of their product because they'll never be sued if it isn't product, if it isn't safe. And so, of course, uh, in December 2020, the COVID-19 vaccine manufacturers uh, were given indemnity in Canada for any type of side effects that these vaccines might cause. So basically, they're protected from any type of liability, which means that they don't actually have to make sure that the vaccines are safe. Um, so what kind of a force has this had? Well, as you can see, a highly lucrative product um, and no need to prove safety. And so in the, in, at least in the US, there's probably about a hundred shots that a child might be scheduled to between the various doses of various vaccines. Uh, and it's, it, it's to the point of almost thinking that this is absurd. They just keep adding another vaccine and adding another vaccine. Um, and so one of the shifts that we're seeing right now is that there are people who are, um, you know, non for profit organizations, such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, that are very passionate about vaccination. And they also benefit considerably from vaccine sales based on their investments. Um, they've pledged $540 million over the next 15 years for maternal vaccination. And so when you get, uh, you know, pledges from donors to this magnitude, uh, what you see is, and of course, a shift in the market, what you see is an emerging market now, which is maternal vaccination. So in order to be able to vaccinate uh, pregnant women, you're going up against the precautionary principle. So we know that vaccinations generally are less tested than other products, sometimes only between seven and five days of testing before they're declared safe, generally speaking, for pediatric vaccines. And so once you shift that under testing um, or that, that low bar for testing and ensuring safety, 
uh, and you move it into the maternal setting, that's actually very concerning because now you're impacting the, the development of a child. And especially if these vaccines are being given in the first trimester, that becomes very concerning just based on the development that's happening, the intense development that's happening at that early stage. Okay. So, Deanna, before you move on, yes, I just want to highlight some of the things you've just brought to our attention again. So first of all, everybody, just so you know, and a bunch of this research and some of this history that Deanna is um, presenting here are the things that woke me up very early on in the pandemic, where understanding the, the, the amount of uh, profitability, the lack of accountability, and um, how, how, how the product shift, like, you, you look at that picture of the baby there with the hundred needles and everybody, we have a Christian worldview and it's the same thing. I have reminded people about masks. If God created human beings that they needed masks, then we would have built in biological masks over our face. <coughs> I don't think we could have timed that cough any better. <laughs> um, of course, in, in, in this world where sickness is a reality, there are certain precautions that we, we, we do take, but look at that picture of that child. And it is from a Christian worldview, you have to realize that we believe that God created children with, with, with great strength in order to grow and develop. Uh, Deanna, in the medical world, we know that they have a great immunity or they, or they, or they are resilient as they quickly um, uh, come across all of these new different uh, 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 viruses and whatnot. And so, I just want everybody to pause and look at that picture and understand. Just imagine if Toyota was given the freedom to never have to pay a lawsuit ever again in their entire life. They were completely indemnified before the law. What that would do to the quality controls uh, at the auto manufacturing plant. Like it is the law and it is the, the, the threat of satisfaction before the law or accountability before the law that keeps any of us in check. And so as Deanna has uh, demonstrated here in this photo, you have an incredible pharmaceutical industry motivated by profit, hitting their best target audience, which is a wide audience that, that Deanna just talked to us about, with, with, no, um, with no accountability. And Deanna, I wanted to... I wanted to ask you this question because, of course, like what has been keeping the tide back? Has it been the no, no, well, maybe the tide hasn't been pushed back that hasn't actually been pushed back. But what has kept just the absolute corruption of this industry at bay so far? And it's this principle. But as you've taught it, it's, it's just a principle, correct? In the sense that it is just a shared agreed upon principle in the medical community with, with really no legal teeth anymore. So if the principle shifts and the morality of the doctors and nurses and the ethics in, in, in the industry decline, then you're really left with 
profitability and absolutely no accountability. So I, everybody, I just wanted to pause and just, that's really what woke me up. Again, I've told you this before, the father of a cancer survivor, the father of a child with a mild uh, form of spina bifida, never in any of those procedures were we ever to look at those needles and go, I don't think that that's good. I don't want that for my child. And not allowed to say that because, mm-hmm. of course, patient advocacy is so important. So we're advocacy, we're, we're advocating to be cautious for these young children and for the preborn children. And mm-hmm. caution has always been the principle, but it's shifting. And we're going to see that right now as Deanna talks about how the pressure for maternal vaccinations is coming about. And by the way, the, the Bill and Melinda Gates thing, everybody, Deanna just skimmed over it really quick. But you have to realize, so that is a nonprofit organization that throws money into vaccination research. That vaccination research is done, so they get charitable, they get they get charitable taxable deductions for that donation. That vaccination research develops and then is sold to the pharmaceutical companies, of which Bill Gates has incredible investments in the sale of the vaccinations. So it's he's he's it, it's a it's a circle of non-for-profit investment that after it is developed, makes Bill Gates incredible amounts of money. And he has said it openly time and time again. Yeah, I think it's called philanthro capitalism, right? It's like where you where you invest, (laughs) you do philanthropic work that pays, which I think isn't philanthropic at that point, right? Well, and I think many uh, Christians have a hard time thinking about people. Yeah, so, you know, when Bill and Melinda, well, Bill Gates becomes interested in a new market, like the unborn, I think that's a great concern for everybody because he doesn't invest in things that he's not going to profit from. And Christians have a hard time understanding this because the scriptures are so clear about being charitable and hospitable. And and, and we, we have one of the most impactful uh, parables of loving our neighbor in, in, in the Good Samaritan and the Samaritan cares for and tends to. And it's a very hospital type of uh, a parable, a very, a very healthcare type of parable. Uh, we would have a hard time thinking that the aid industry could turn this way. But folks, if you've ever lived abroad, you know that uh, charitable giving can either be very, very sincere or it can quickly move into an industry all in of, all, all in of itself. And that is what's happening right here before you. So you need to be cautious about this. Canada giving money to other countries, it means no accountability. It, it, it is a... It is a legal money laundering system mm-hmm. that is that does not have legality. <laughs> it should be illegal, but it is legal, and that's what's happening. So, Deanna, I just wanted to pause on that before you moved on because that is very impactful information you've just shared. Thanks, Michael. Um, so here we are in the the CDC website. This is uh, the list of recommended vaccines for pregnant women. Uh, so you can see that they they basically forged the market with the flu shot. The flu shot has never been tested in a randomized controlled trial in pregnant women. They just decided that they would start to do it. In fact, um, it's usually unethical and deemed unethical by any ethics review board to do research in pregnancy because of the risks to the fetus uh, and the developing child. So um, 
the way the workaround uh, that public health pushed in this particular case was basically to declare safety in the absence of randomized data that proves safety, uh, and then just begin giving the vaccine to pregnant women. And so they began that a, a, a good while ago. Uh, and then, of course, they moved to the Tdap, which is the tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis vaccine. Again, I haven't looked at the data carefully on that one, um, but I, again, I, I highly doubt that they did any randomized controlled trials in pregnant women to be able to prove safety for the developing child because um, they're usually unethical or deemed unethical. And again, here we are with the COVID-19 vaccine. So you can see that when the COVID-19 vaccine came in on, or the product came in on the, on the stage, that this was uh, stepping into an established protocol of vaccinating pregnant women. So they'd already kind of worked through it and what it's called, it's called like laying the foundation or, or laying the rails for use in a given thing. And then what they just have to do is they just have to send another vaccine down those rails. So, you know, they've already worked with public health officials and, um, you know, OB-GYNs and, and networks and doctors to convince them that maternal vaccination is fine. And then of course, when they get to the COVID-19 shot, there's already that framework that people are operating for, uh, from saying, oh yes, it is fine. Um, but we're going to get into a little, a few of the reasons that over and above the fact that they haven't been properly tested or proven safe in these particular population, the COVID-19 vaccine is not a typical vaccine and, and that should be concerning to anybody who's considering taking it. Um, interestingly enough, throughout the pandemic, another uh, vaccine was approved by the US FDA, a Pfizer GBS vaccine was approved. Uh, and just recently in May 2023, amidst lots of headlines that RSV is the next worst thing ever, even though it's been with us forever and very few people ever get sick from it, um, the advisory panel, I think, approved, um, basically recommended that the Pfizer RSV vaccine be approved. And so one of the things that I think is really important to note is that Pfizer was the company that pushed the COVID-19 vaccine through, and here they are again with the GBS vaccine, and here they are again with the RSV vaccine. So, you know, if Bill and Melinda Gates are into it, we know that Pfizer, um, which is a company uh, that is huge and has also um, been convicted uh, for fraudulent um, testing and research and also uh, has been convicted of lawsuits where they fudge safety data uh, is the one at the forefront or one of the companies at the forefront of um, this whole push to maternal vaccination. Uh, and so what we see is this increased pre-birth exposure to under-tested products. So the medical system is taking a hold of these unborn children and they're basically pushing this under-tested stuff on them. And of course, um, you know, you mentioned this previously, Mike, this whole idea that, you know, how is it, how is it that, you know, we've allowed that many shots to, um, uh, to be given to newborn children, you know, up to a hundred shots. Uh, and it's because all of the, the money that these vaccine manufacturers have been getting, um, and, and of course, they're free of indemnity and they don't have to do all the testing. So that means that there's a lot of extra money on the table that's available for education to medical audiences and also partnering with public health to the point now where public health is really um, the ex an extended marketing and sales arm 
of a lot of uh, vaccine manufacturing companies. And you actually note that, you know, especially in the COVID-19 pandemic, the Pfizer, you know, Pfizer and Moderna were doing very little advertising, especially while it was under emergency use authorization. And yet all of the same type of gimmicky tagline type uh, promo that would normally come from a pharmaceutical company was coming out of the mouths of this public health officials, likely because they were being coached by the very same PR firms uh, that a pharmaceutical company might use uh, to promote their particular product. But of course, now it's coming through the, health, the, the mouths of the public health officials, and somehow that seems a way more credible. And yet at the same time, it, it's, you know, whenever the, when I heard that stuff coming out of the public health officials, I'm like, oh my gosh, you sound like a sales rep. Uh, and, you know, it likely is the fact that, you know, for years now they've been partnering with pharmaceutical companies and pushing vaccination and it's almost become an ideology or a fervor. And, you know, you really start to become concerned when you hear terms like anti-vaxxer, you know, that's where they polarize or stigmatize a, a, a group of people. And anytime I come across any type of charged word like that, when I'm doing research, I immediately go to look for safety data because they don't create or manufacture uh, a title or a tag like that, unless they're trying to hide something. Uh, and, you know, and what we'll do is we'll get into some of the safety data that they used for this COVID-19 mRNA products. And we'll see that it, it really was inadequate uh, to prove safety, especially uh, when they're being administered to pregnant women and uh, breastfeeding mothers. So just before we move on, I want to bring it to everyone's attention. By the way, man, our episodes together do so well. Thank you for coming on. Um, Deanna, we shot part one, part two, and part three and, uh, of, um, big pharma and vaccines mm, and mm -hmm. uh, everybody, you need to go listen to that. Um, but the particular one on that was big pharma and vaccine conflict of interest in that episode, um, about how, uh, public health has been compromised and used to be a, um, used to be a barrier of entry or used to be a bodyguard for, 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 for public citizenry and has now just been turned into another, another voice for the pharmaceutical company. I, I, assume, I think that one's right, right? Uh, yeah. That, that I can't remember which episode it was, but yeah, I think we did it maybe even two part, a two part episode on that because the conflicts of interest are so extensive. Uh, yeah. It was hard to cover them all in an hour. I think so, guys, all you have to do is go to rumble type Indiana McLeod and our episodes come up. 10,000, 12,000, 3,000, 7,000 views, really good episodes with Deanna presenting exactly in chart form. So you can visually see it, how public health has really betrayed, um, the, the public interest for self-interest. And, um, so that, that's why we're, we're talking like this. Okay, go, go ahead. Keep going. Let's get, keep going through the good material. Yeah, so COVID-19 vaccines, the problem is that they're actually not the traditional vaccine. They're actually gene therapy being marketed as a vaccine. Um, and Mike, I remember, you know, <laughs> the, the fateful day that I kind of stepped into the whole COVID-19 um, resistance force, or I don't know what you want to call this, but, um, you know, started educating in and of this area was the day that, um, you know, they started to say that vaccines were the way out of the pandemic. It was, you know, way back when in early 2021. Uh, and so my research team and I said, oh boy, let's, let's take a look at this study that's been published in the New England Journal of Medicine showing us that the vaccines are, are the only way out. I want to see this. Like, 
you know, A, how do you prove that in a year, less than a year? Like the thing was only in development for eight or nine months. Um, and, you know, you can't even prove safety in eight months, right? You can only, you can only speculate on safety, if anything. Um, but anyways, I looked have, at, go on, ahead. On that point, I, I know, I, I don't really want to slow us down too much because we end up talking so in depth about all these things, but just for new listeners, early on in the pandemic, we would have been talking about what it actually means to declare safety. And so you've, you've talked about clinical randomized testing. Like we're talking about, we, we, we've gone into all of this in the past, but we're talking about uh, d- different, different phases uh, being animal trials, then yeah. being critical randomized trials, then being, I, I think like slow, like phase three is, you know, a, a a broader randomized trial, but, but released like folks, they're skipping all of these. They, mm-hmm. they are, they are utilizing the real, because they're, they're utilizing the release of the drug as their trial. Like that's not proving safety. Deanna, if you want to correct me on that, but, but it's like, we, this is so old hat. Mm-hmm. We haven't really gone through how many historical checks and balances that they are skipping well interestingly enough they'd probably catch you in the fact checker on that one michael um so they they don't post on youtube so go ahead and (laughs) you're you're right in that um there's phases to clinical research and there's something called a preclinical testing and that means that you before you give it to humans and again it's the way that they do the research it's grounded in this precept of doing no harm so it's all about risk minimization you risk of harm, you minimize the risk of harm. So first you test it on animals to make sure that it's safe in humans, right? And then you test it in a very small group of humans to make sure that it's safe for testing in a larger group of humans. And then you go for a larger group of humans and then you test it for a long time to make sure that in this larger group of humans to make sure that there's no risk. And then even after that, after you've proven it, tested for a long-term in a randomized controlled trial in a larger group of humans, then you still monitor it after it's been given in a post-marketing trial to make sure that when you give it to the broader population, that's still safe. So there's all of these checks and balances, as you mentioned, that, that ensure safety. So what they did was they did, they used what they call an adaptive clinical trial design. And adaptive meaning that they get to jig it around, <laughs> you know, put it, turn it on its head maybe. Uh, and so they said, well, we don't want to skip any step, but we'll run them in parallel. Right. So we'll do the preclinical testing in animals while we're doing it in humans. And, you know, we'll we'll, you know, jam jam together the phase one, two trials so that we'll just test it right away in a larger group of people. And then, you know, before that's even done or very close to before that's even done, then we'll just jump to a very large group of of uh, of humans in a randomized controlled trial. But then we'll stop the trial really early and we'll just give it to everybody and we'll just we'll see how it goes once we give it to everybody. Uh, and of course, when they're giving it to everybody, they're not really monitoring safety very carefully. So that's really good. If you don't want to find safety problems, you just don't monitor for them, right? If you don't look, you can't see anything. So that's their kind of mantra. So what they did is they kind of rushed through all of the steps. And of course, they did it in a way that doesn't minimize risk. And I think that's the biggest and most important point there. And they, that compressed ta- timeline basically made it uh, so that it is impossible to ensure safety, so uh, Deanna, especially safety over time. When my child is trying to ride their four wheeler with one hand and standing up with no helmet after being drunk and then breaking the speed limit 
and then they try to come back and sell me that as safe driving. That's what we call fraud. (laughs) Right. The fact checkers can say whatever they want about it, but when you do all of what you just described, you Mm -hmm. are knowingly and intentionally committing fraud. You are no longer trying to uh, create safety. No, you you're not. No, you're not. To market and mm-hmm. creating fraud when you say you have established safety. But you know what's really interesting about this is that what we see in the COVID nineteen pandemic is a twisting of the precautionary principle. So the precautionary principle is if if you're unsure about something, then you don't do it. Right? You you resist things that are have uncertainties. Um, but what I've seen in the pandemic is really really fascinating. Is instead of focusing on you know, we're always concerned about the safety of a drug. Is it safe before I take it, right? But what they've done is they've shifted everybody's focus onto how unsafe the the virus is. And then they basically said, well, because that's unsafe, then we have to move forward with something that's under tested just to make sure that we keep people safe. Do you see how the shift has gone? So people are naturally concerned about safety. So they've shifted the concern from the product safety to the virus's safety. And then they overemphasize the fact that the virus isn't safe, even if that's not even true, right? They make it seem very unsafe so that people move towards the solution that they're being presented, even though it's not been proven safe. So it's very crafty. And you can, I could see that they've used some high caliber PR agencies to really you know, do this manipulation uh, and to present it in this twisted fashion to the public. And so everybody thinks that they're actually fighting safety and keeping people safe all the while exposing them to great risk because they're being given a gene therapy that hasn't been properly tested. Right. It's very, I mean, from a marketing standpoint, I'm like, wow, well done. From, you know, a human concern standpoint, it's horrifying, honestly. Uh, and it just goes to show what big money can do, right? Uh, you know, when you've got all of the these pro- the profit margins that are available to these vaccines and when you're pushing them, um, you know, on people at, at large and, and accessing public money uh, to buy them and you've got free sales and marketing because your public health agencies are doing your work for you. Um, I mean, you just, you're really just cashing in. So um, let's let's just go back to this slide though and so everybody needs just, to understand what gene therapy is. Okay, go ahead. Okay, I just want to comment on that last thing, and then we'll, we go, we'll, you go right on. Big money without accountability and morality, folks. That mm-hmm. it, it, it's not that we are saying don't be industrious and go out and create products and and do product testing and do product safety development and sell products. Big money without the law to keep criminals at bay and without the morality coming from scripture in the general uh, population, in the general worldview leads to this level of corruption. So I just want to clarify that on that, Deanna, because there are some very wealthy people who do a great, honest, legal and um, moral work. It it is our, it is our worldview. It, It is our, it is our sinfulness uh, that will uh, either we, we will refrain, we will restrain ourselves from it, or we will give ourselves to it. That is what's happening here, and I think that is why sometimes I push so hard just to be clear about the change is a change of of, of moral 
proport of, of, of in the moral category, and it's of a va- it's like a significant proportion. Like we're we're entering into a new world of danger when we're seeing so many people go this way for the sake of profit. Okay, Deanna, what what's a what is our a gene? What's a gene therapy drug? Yeah, so so. I, I work in the cancer realm and we deal with something called biologics. Um, and so gene therapy is a type of biologic. And generally speaking, they have, you know, at, at the very least increased risk of undesirable and unpredictable uh, ri- like outcomes, like side effects or adverse reactions, right? Just, just because it starts to interfere with how your, your, your biological mechanisms work, uh, you know, in this case, gene therapy starts to tamper with your, uh, it's not DNA specifically, at least not by design in these particular things, but mRNA, which is the, the coding that you use to develop proteins in your body. So, um, you know, when we looked at the side effect profile early in 2021 of this particular product, uh, it looked like something that we would give for cancer therapy. It was, it looked like a biologic profile where you've got incredible phase two and phase three adverse reactions. You know, I think, um, I think up to 15% of people, uh, had a phase three adverse event after the second dose in the Moderna phase three trial early on. Um, this was, this is no walk in the park. This is a toxic therapy by any means. And I would probably say it's, it's equivalent to some of the biologics that, you know, I've analyzed, uh, for cancer. And of course, when you're giving it to cancer patients, the risk benefit ratio is different than if you're giving it to healthy people. So if you're, if you're about to die from cancer, then you might take on more risk of toxicity or adverse events than you would if you're a healthy individual. So the fact that they were promoting this gene therapy, which, um, is quite toxic, as a vaccine where people normally think the framework for vaccines are, oh, they're safe. And, you know, at least most of the other vaccines had been tested for about 10 years, you know, with that preclinical in the phase one, two, even though the phase three trials are probably um, run for too short a time, generally speaking, and have the wrong endpoints, at least there were phase three trials, um, not necessarily in pregnant women, but in general. And so, whenever they started marketing this gene therapy as a vaccine, I was terrified and horrified because I was thinking, oh my goodness, they're going to give this toxic therapy to healthy people. And who knows what type of undesirable outcomes will occur with this when you're starting to mess with people's biologics, A, and specifically when you're introducing code into a person's body that teaches it to produce the spike protein, which is the cause of sickness in the SARS-CoV-2. So when anybody gets really, really sick from the virus, it's because of the spike protein interacting in their body. So to think that they're now going to give a code to an individual that causes them to produce copious amounts of spike protein, which is a known toxin and known there's the element that causes sickness, uh, you know, toxin pathogen, you know, the part that causes sickness um, was horrifying to myself and my team. And that's when we decided to step into the ring and start to, you know, analyze a lot of this study and educate in and around this area because it is so concerning. So I think, um, you know, if you actually look at FDA guidance for gene therapy, it recommends that you do up to 15 years of safety testing before widespread use. And that's because of this 
uh, undesirable and unpredictable safety outcomes. Like you need to do careful monitoring and safety testing in order to ensure that it is appropriate for use and that you're not exposing the general population to harm. Um, and then when they basically started recommending this in the general population, there was less than six months of quality safety data. When I say quality safety data, I mean randomized controlled trial data um, that basically showed that these vaccines were safe. So that's just a fraction of the typical safety testing that you would do for vaccines in general, but oh my gosh, specifically for gene therapy. So um, I think Dana, it's particularly you, horrifying. You made the connection to like being potentially as dangerous as some of these chemotherapies that cancer patients get. It actually just hit me that like my son has to have his heart examined every single year mm. because of uh, some of the chemotherapy, the risk that we accepted because he had a he had an aggressive um, he had a, he had an aggressive liver cancer, mm. mm -hmm. and I'm I don't know I've never asked about this, but I've I wonder if he would be getting checked for myocarditis or some type of scarring. I know that it's scarring or scar tissue on the heart. Yeah. Yeah. Doxorubicin has got a, a, has a cardiotoxicity as one of the side effects. So that's one of the, the element, that's one of the chemos that they usually give young children. Um, yeah. The, the biologics are kind of, you know, a lot of people think of them as less toxic than chemotherapy. And, and I think in many regards they are. Um, but again, even if they were a little bit less than chemotherapy, um, I, I think that your particular story tells us that, you know, there are long-term consequences to exposure, right? Right. And, and that's what was just hitting me right now. Like the, the, the relationship that I have had with this thought so far has just been, my child will not get this new vaccination because of the current weakness but I actually had not logically connected through the idea that like this has the same potential. Now it's been pushed on every child in the world, not just children dying of cancer, but yeah. pushed on every child of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And health, otherwise healthy children who are not at risk of severe absolutely. outcomes. Yeah. And let's just say it's 10% of what, the risk that we would feel if you were to say to the, if you had, if you had told the average person, by the way, if you give your child this, there's a 10% chance they have to, for the rest of their life, go get their heart checked every year because of like, and you had to put it into, again, the lower, you know, for those of us who just talk experientially and don't have a medical vocabulary, instead of using big medical words, just saying, yeah, it's, it's, it, there's a possibility here where your child has to get their heart checked every, every year because later on in life, they might die as an adult of heart disease, which by the way, at our church, um, at, our, at, our, at our previous church, just we, we had a you know, 43, 44 year old woman pass away because um, of, the, of the scarring of, of, on her heart from receiving a childhood chemotherapy. So, you know, mm -hmm. again, it was, mm -hmm. she was dying. She received this chemotherapy, lived a much longer life, had children. That was a great blessing. At that time, the benefits, outweighed the risk, but then she also died at a young age. And unfortunately, that was one of the families that we were in conflict with uh, going through all of this. Um, 
And I'm just putting that all into context right now. Like we're talking about, like you said, not as toxic, but in, but in a similar concerning way, I have a son who received this type of drug and who has to get tested annually. And Mm so folks, if Mm -hmm. you received this vaccine and you did it thoughtlessly, um, you might be finding yourself uh, needing that level of medical attention in the future. It's that type of severity that we've got to be, we got to be thinking about right now. And that just hit me, Deanna, as you were going through this slide. Wow. That seemed similar. I know it's not a one for one and, Mm -hmm. but it seemed similar to some of the cautions and concerns that you would have with a, with a, with a cancer patient. So, wow. Mm -hmm. In some of the, in some of the testing, the post-marketing testing that they did or that Pfizer did, they, they produced a report. I'll speak to this report later, but um, of all the people that reported uh, vaccine suspected adverse events, which is what you do in a post-marketing trial, it's where somebody says, oh my gosh, this happened right after my vaccine. I think they did it. And then they, you know, go to the, um, effort of submitting a report, uh, what they saw was that 30% of the uh, adverse events that occurred didn't resolve within the time frame that they were looking at those reports, meaning that, you know, there's probably adverse events that are going to occur that that are going to have long-term consequences. And, you know, I just want to clarify one thing. So biologics generally are less than chemotherapy. But these gene therapy products, these mRNA products that teach your body to produce copious amounts of a pathogen that is known to be harmful to humans are probably another category. And at least with chemotherapy and biologics, they've gone through sufficient testing to be able to characterize the side effects profile. So you know who's at risk and who's not at risk and you know what to expect. And so you can monitor them like you can monitor your son. But because the powers that be, the health officials, declared them to be safe and then stopped testing, there is no long-term or very le- not very good uh, long-term monitoring of safety um, for these particular products. So we, we don't even know enough to be able to connect something that happens to somebody months or you know, six months to a year out that it, that might be related to these products. And then we don't even know to monitor them to make sure that we can keep them safe because we're in complete denial that these things actually have any type of adverse events to them. Uh, and our public health officials, who again would be the people that we would be looking to in order to keep us safe, are basically censoring doctors that are concerned about safety um, and they're censoring the media in order to make sure that nobody talks about adverse events and that the people who've been injured uh, aren't, um, you know, their stories aren't getting out uh, because what they feel it does is it interferes with vaccine uh, confidence or it might promote vaccine hesitancy, which is now, whereas, you know, previously we would have been saying we want to make sure to keep people safe from these products. Now they've twisted it again, just like they twisted the precautionary principle. And they now basically make vaccine confidence and diminishing vaccine hesitancy as the highest purpose of public health. So public health no longer is keeping the public safe in the sense that we all understood from, you know, historically. It is now about making sure that the, the that nobody uh, feels uh, lacks confidence in doing exactly what they say. So it's basically propaganda. 
in a sense of, you know, anybody who has a counterpoint of view, then the public health agency needs to focus in on and, and make sure to convince them that what the public health agency is saying is good. And in this case, the public health agency is saying that gene therapy that's under tested uh, and being promoted as a vaccine is, is good. So it's, it's really concerning because, you know, again, the shift has come from the do no harm, do no harm to the general population to make sure the general population complies. And by, by pushing this, this greater good of, uh, maintaining vaccine confidence because vaccines are always good and more vaccines are always better for the population and it keeps them safe. Do you see how that works? Again, my hat's off to the PR firms that they hired for all of this stuff because, you know, they they really did a good job of twisting that all around and convincing people that they're they're actually safest by complying with public health. I want again, I just want people to pause on that. We've moved from do no harm to do what you're told. Yeah. And do what you're told is being driven by big pharma, big government, not personal medicine. That you you've got to see that shift so that you know you're not being pushed around or you know when you are being pushed around. You've gone from do no harm to do what you do what you're told. And um I Continue, Deanna. I, I don't. I don't want to repeat myself. It, it's just a. It's just a big. It's a big shift hey in the medical community. I, I find it very hard uh, to uh, absorb all of that and think that I would have to re-enter that medical establishment uh, while this type of worldview is pervasive. Yeah, it really gives you pause to consider, right? If there's, if if ask um, questions, ask yeah. questions, ask questions, ask questions. Do not be bullied ask questions. Yeah. And I think that there's an invitation there too, because I think in the past, there was a lot of blind trust that was extended to healthcare, you know, the system workers in particular, um, you know, in, in my world, the moment a doctor said, do something, you know, everybody was like, okay, I must do it. But, you know, I'm involved in guideline development and, um, you know, the doctors are basically told to follow the guidelines now. And, you know, if they don't follow the guidelines as if, you know, the, for instance, the public health guidelines for COVID-19 vaccines, you know, they're, they're, risk of, they're at risk of discipline and losing their license. So, you know, now, I mean, if you can just imagine if big pharma starts to fund guideline development, it's over. Right. You know, and, you know, you can see that they've they've had a, a, a very strong hand in doing similar things like this for the COVID-19 mRNA products. So um, you really do have to be very, very careful that, you know, you could be interacting with a, a healthcare professional who thinks that they trust the guidelines, but then the guidelines have been co-opted. Uh, and, you know, they might actually have your best interests in mind, but just have had bad information. So it's a difficult situation because traditionally, the doctors have been trained individuals who have your best interest in mind, but now they're, they're actually having competing interests because if they don't go with what the guidelines say, or the narrative says in this particular case, they're at risk of discipline. So they're, you know, they, they no longer can just consider your best interest anymore. And I think that that's a sobering thought that people need to really consider whenever they step into the doctor's office that, you know, they're limited in their ability to help now. And it's important to ask questions like you could even ask a question is, have you looked at the original research yourself 
Or you could say, is there any reason why you would hesitate to give me this, you know, or are you required to say this because of a guideline? You know, there's all sorts of ways that you can yeah, actually. Yeah, that last one. Yeah. That last one's very important. Yeah. My wife has been, Deanna, my wife has been a, 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 you know, a mother advocate. And a lot of doctors, if you ask those three questions, you're either going to get a fantastic doctor or you're going to get shown the door. Mm -hmm. Have you looked at the original research? If they have, they'll be competent to share it with you. If they haven't, they will be threatened. What was the second question you asked? Um, you know, uh, are you following a guideline, you know, and are you free to give me your, your true opinion? Yeah, you know, that's, that's right. It, it, there was a middle one in there and I, I'm sorry that I forgot it. There was three that you just went, but, and that last one is a new one. You have to ask, are, do, are you compelled to say this mm -hmm. or are mm -hmm. you free to speak your mind? Cause I remember the very mm -hmm. first thing when COVID came, people would say, well, go talk to your family doctor. And any of us who did any research said, they're firing any doctor that says anything <laughs> of their own mind. What are you talking about? Go talk to my doctor. So that is, and I'm telling you, we had this experience of kids, sick kids, everybody. We had two or three doctors where you could ask those three questions and you would get brilliant, helpful, insightful, thoughtful, caring answers. And then we had other doctors who would lose their temper with you. Mm. And I'm telling you, we had, we had a particular doctor, Dr. Gupta, where we would, we'd like quietly go to him and say, look, we're kind of scared of asking a few other people this question, but these are the questions that we're asking. And he would answer us. And sometimes it would change our direction. And sometimes it would reinforce what everyone else was saying. And, um, but that explanation is really important. You've got to ask, 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 and advocate, advocate, advocate. Okay. Next mm -hmm. slide, Deanna. You're doing oh, great. We've um, as going. per usual, I'm guessing we're like a 10th into the slides and we're an hour into the podcast. Oh so my word. How, how do we far... do this? Oh, it's good um, conversation and we'll just take it up in the next episode. Okay. Well, um, I'm, you asked how far along are we? I have no idea. I think we're, we're getting close to halfway. Maybe if, uh, okay. yeah, do we maybe do Well, everybody just so you know, then. Uh, we are going to be shooting part two immediately and we're going to be going through great data, but you've been listening to with us for an hour and this is going to be part one of protecting pregnancy and breastfeeding. You've kind of heard again of some of the foundational and fundamental shifts that are happening. You've heard some good definitions and so now we're ready to go into some of the more technical information about this particular gene therapy. Stay tuned. Um, and we are releasing this video this week and the next video next week. So stay tuned and listen in. Um, a lot of Deanna's research has been brought on this podcast with uh, Dr. Stephen Pellick has brought uh, research on this podcast. I encourage you to go to Liberty Coalition Canada Rumble channel and just search in the background. And if you're really excited between, you know, chapter one and chapter two of this next podcast, go and re-listen to some of the past um, you know, incredible research that's been presented here. And you can do that with many of the doctors that we've spent time with. I'm going to wrap up this part of the show with just letting you know that if you want to help encourage this type of information 
uh, by supporting our podcasting, head over to libertycoalitioncanada.com backslash donate and click the analysis box. If you donate there, your donation will go directly to Christian Week. And that's because they help us produce these podcasts. And analysis is exactly what we're trying to do. You can hear me using uh, a layman's, uh, 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 you know, more like a patient vocabulary, trying to interact with Deanna, who's doing great research because we're analyzing the research and helping you understand it. If you want to support any of our legal cases, because of course, um, you know, Deanna has done great research and she is one of the research that I researchers that has not faced legal um, repercussions, but other individuals across the country are facing legal action. And so we at Liberty Coalition Canada support them by, by bringing James Kitchen in to give them legal counsel. And so you can click donate and click other designations and that goes towards our legal cases. So you can find our shows on the uh, Liberty Dispatch feed uh, under so, so we have a we have a show Liberty Dispatch, but then we have a feed that releases all of our shows under that dispatching banner, um, and that is available on Apple and Spotify and wherever you get you get your um, podcasts. And then we're also available exclusively or uh, uh, additionally uh, on the Fight Left Feast Network, and they have a great app called uh, Pub TV. So thanks for listening, everybody, and tune in next week for part two. <laughs>